Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. An air of finality pervades today's world. That's the opening sentence of Jonathan White's book, In the Long Run, The Future as a Political Idea. And it kicks off discussion of that subtitle, really. Uh, What role this book asks does the idea of the future play in contemporary politics? So welcome to you. Thank you. And my first question is is rather fundamental to your thesis. Um, Does an air of finality pervade today's world? What's the evidence for that? I think you see it in a number of places. I think it's a world in which a lot of people feel themselves facing some kind of emergency, but they disagree on what kind of emergency. So you could say that the the left has its emergencies, climate change, concentrations of economic power, inequality, Uh, There are right-wing emergencies, which are to do with uh, migration, state power, cultural change, and so on. There are ones that maybe you could even call centrist emergencies to do with like that, global geopolitics or or AI, things that seem to touch um, a number of political orientations. And of course, on the one level, these are functions of the problems that societies face, in the present. And climate change is, I think, emblematic of that. But at the same time, I think things become emergencies when you you feel powerless to address them, when you feel like they are somehow escaping your control. And that's what then introduces the, the desire to address them with great urgency, cutting out institutions with a certain uh, intolerance of, uh, of adversaries, of those who might stand in the way of tap- tackling them. So I think we do feel this sense of finality. I think you see it in electoral politics then as, as people like, well, in the most uh, extreme formulation, perhaps Donald Trump talking about the coming election as a final battle. So this notion of of an election as being the last as opposed to one of a sequence, as we perhaps often think of it. Um, but I think you also you see it not just in uh, in Trumpian politics, but in in a whole range of uh, uh, political currents, including those concerned with 
climate change and want to see it as a climate emergency, including those that uh, are focused on um, on classical economic class questions. So this I would uh, I, I would see would be the evidence for it. If you look in electoral politics, you have this uh, this discourse of urgency and of uh, finality, which I think cuts across one part of the political spectrum. Maybe just to um, to round off that thought. Um, Referenda are political moments which often invite exactly that sense of the standalone, the final clash, because a referendum is something which is not expected to be repeated, at least for the foreseeable future. You have a referendum with the idea of settling something. Of course, we're familiar with that sentiment in in Britain with Brexit. But I think what you're increasingly seeing is that spilling into electoral politics and elections being fought as though they were almost referenda, standalone moments, final moments, things that are meant to to settle a question rather than ones which are a series of uh, provisional encounters. So you make you know quite a convincing case there as to why this idea is is present in contemporary politics. But when, when, when I was reading those passages, I was thinking, well, you know, people used to worry about nuclear Armageddon which was a much more sort of definitive final moment, if you like, and uh, and you know was keenly felt with you know, school children being taught to hide under their desks and all that. Uh, so, does that make you wonder how new all this is? I think what is new would be the proliferation of this sentiment across a wide range of issues and its uh, permeation into a whole set of different political orientations. In other words, it's uh, it, it's not the preserve of those who are part of an anti-war movement or those who are part of uh, um, one political part of the world faced with a certain geopolitical uh, uh, set of issues to do with uh, a nuclear standoff. Um, now you, you see that sentiment almost describing all political problems that, uh, that make their way into contemporary politics. So I, I don't think... I would want to say that a sense of existential threat is new. That's clearly not the case. We can go back to the nuclear weapons of the 40s and 50s. We can surely go back earlier as well to um, the way global conflicts were, were, were described, the way um, uh, in an earlier age um, uh, religious ideas made their way into social uh, thinking. But I think what is perhaps more characteristic of the present is that it's very hard to to localize that sentiment on just one set of concerns. The nuclear threat, of course, stays with us. But then in addition to that, we, we talk of climate change. In addition to that, there are those that want to turn just cross-border movement into an emergency, into a crisis. And there are those who would, to my mind, more convincingly talk about uh, the concentration of economic power in, in, in similar terms. So ultimately, we have to decide what we think are the are the key emergencies, but I think from almost any political perspective, this sense of the proliferation of emergencies is likely to be common. Let's move on now to what would the implications be of this, particularly you're uh, asking in your book for democracy. So if, if, if people living in democracies are worried about the future or think there's no future, uh, what does that mean for the, the political system? So I think there are various ways in which democracy has relied on a notion of an indefinite future. And I think this is particularly true of representative democracy. In other words, modern democracy 
is not the classical ideal of everyone assembling and deciding matters in a direct fashion. It is politics which is somehow mediated by by representation. And that introduces a kind of reliance on the future, which I think is distinctive to representative democracy. Representative democracy is about um, finding ways to legitimize those institutions, those procedures on which representation relies. It's also because representation never quite works. It's always about trying to, if you like, cope with the imperfections of institutions and constitutions as well. Um, because, you know, it's impossible to to represent all interests or values at a given moment. Something is always left out. And the political scientists, I think, would tell us that the way in which modern democracy has tried to cope with that is by cultivating the notion that there's something provisional about uh, politics at any given moment. In other words, we may not like the result of a certain set of elections. We may feel that important concerns have been excluded. Um, and they will be excluded because representation, party politics, and so on is uh, is always a, a rough cut at a, at a much more complex set of issues. And yet, if you don't like the result of a certain set of elections, the, the ideal would be to say, well, at least there's a next time. There's a time where those who are on the losing end this this time can can hope to uh, to win next time can hope to get their ideas their their perspectives triumphant in electoral politics now of course there's something slightly idealizing about that and we often worry that there are permanent minorities that it's never quite as easy as it sounds for minorities at one given moment to expect to be majorities in the future but nonetheless i think this is this is something that is kind of seen as uh a deviation from how things ought to be is pathological in some sense. If if modern democracy works as it should, then the idea is whatever is unsatisfactory about the present can be corrected in the future. And I think this is exactly why the the sense of uh, of emergency of of temporal pressure claustrophobia that one uh, can identify in the present poses problems for democracy because instead of allowing us to see democracy as a process in which um, outcomes are provisional at a given moment, it, uh, it becomes much harder to see that. If you, if you think of climate deadlines, if you, if you take seriously, and there are good reasons to take seriously, the idea that certain decisions have to be made within five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever particular climate deadline one uh, adopts, um, that gives a kind of... Uh, sense of a critical moment to a very short window of time. And it puts in doubt this idea that you might hope to wait for next time if you are dissatisfied by what happens in the present, because maybe there isn't that time available. Maybe next time is too far away and things will be impossible to to revisit and to reverse at that point. So yeah, I think democracy is a process. And I think what we see in the present is this loss of the sense of the process and and rather a shift towards something like a, a showdown. So I think, you know, many, many of the interviews we've done in this series have dwelt on the fact that democracy seems in trouble, uh, but most people would put it down to uh, technology, social media, uh, maybe some fears about immigration, maybe, but, uh, you know, post-truth, 
probably more important uh, as factors that have led to that. Uh, are you saying that, you know, while all those may be true, that people are missing this other element, which is a concern about the future? Absolutely. So I would entirely agree that uh, democracy's current predicaments are partly to be understood in exactly those uh, factors you just named. But um, I think exactly this ramping up of the tensions of the present into something um, which makes people very impatient with institutions, procedures, and, and so on is about a, a sense of a kind of lacking confidence in the future. And that's, uh, I would also want to say, it's not um, it's not without its uh, its explanation. So I think if you if you think about what political parties perhaps once offered, what they were understood to represent, it was something like the long-term cause, the uh, the project that can outlive the individual. So the isms of the, the 19th and the 20th century, liberalism, socialism, and indeed fascism, to some extent, although fascism is different, these isms were, if you like, the, the parties that promoted them were the... Um, the expression of uh, the long-term perspective in politics, and not just the expression, but that which could give it a certain credibility, because they were organizations that uh, you could hope would somehow maintain a set of uh, principles, ideas beyond the present, and indeed beyond what the individual can can hope to control. And what changes uh, over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st is that parties, movements, these if you like, uh, organizational embodiments of the long-term perspective of future thinking, they start to to lose much of that character. They become more focused on uh, personalities, power is redistributed within parties so that it's um, often away from those who believe in the ideas, the activists, those that are perhaps most committed to uh, the, the ideological perspective that the party defines itself by. And the power shifts away from them towards those who are perhaps more concerned with uh, with offices, with uh, getting power in a, in a more immediate sense. And so parties change over time. And I think this is is important for this, uh, this sort of loss, if you like, of uh, confidence in the future that we might see in contemporary democracy. So it's, uh, it's certainly to be explained partly by reference to technological change, to economic change to the precariousness of individual lives and employment under conditions of, of casualization and so on. Those things make it harder to to take a future perspective on on politics and, and life in general. But I think I would want to, to add that there are also political origins to this story. It finds its expression in politics, but it also reflects changes within politics. And for me, it's it's got a lot to do with these changes within those things that were perhaps the expression of collective future thinking, parties, movements, and so on. Well, it's, it's interesting what you say there about the isms, which were, you know, so uh, you have passages in the book on, you know, utopianism uh, in in the 1900s, Robert Owen and those people thinking about brighter futures, uh, and as you say, even fascism looking ahead. But do they really differ from the very simple opinion poll question which you get at every sort of presidential election in the US or even in the UK, uh, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? 
you know what I mean? I mean, it's that there's a pessimism now, but does the that short-term pessimism relate to the longer-term ideas about Marxism, utopianism, fascism, whatever it was? There's a timescale thing is going on here too, is there? Um, yes, I mean, there, there certainly is. I think those earlier isms that you take us back to in the 19th century or indeed utopian literature of the of the 18th century um it's often keeps a kind of further future in view this does change over time in the revolutionary period the late 18th century in france the us i think there's a lot of focus on on immediacy on on, on the sense that things are changing very quickly and uh, utopian thought almost seems lethargic it seems to uh uh, to not be keeping up with a fast-changing world. But as you get into the 19th century and, and the early 20th, I think these uh, these forms of collectively thinking the future often um, do keep a, a quite a long-term perspective in view. The, the cover of my book, for example, has a, a tortoise on it. And the Fabians, of course, would be one political movement that... Uh, plays off these ideas and indeed adopts a tortoise as its uh, emblem plays off these ideas of uh, of the long struggle of uh, of organizing for for the long term um with of course the potential uh vulnerability to the idea that they are themselves uh losing any sense of the urgency of the moment insofar as they they take the position of the the tortoise rather than the hare so in the 19th and 20th century, these forms of thinking the future, I think, very much try to connect short-term concrete claims, demands such as to do with workers' rights, such as to do with uh, um, changes in in the law and constitutional structures to uh, to change um, uh, societies as they move into the democratic age. They try to combine those immediate demands with some notion of the uh, indefinite project, the thing which needs to be continued by uh, later generations of those persuaded roughly by the same ideas. I think that's rather different from today's parties of uh, of opinion polls. Firstly, because of course, opinion polls are about tracking change in a more immediate fashion, with a with a view to making perhaps predictions about the coming months about what's going to happen in the election in this country later in the year, for example. Um, things that you can try and predict are necessarily, I think, th- things which are closer to you in time, because those are the things you are more confident about predicting. So polls, they point things towards something that's a bit closer in time. And they are, as that implies, more about um, probabilities rather than possibilities, more about thinking how things are likely to pan out from the present as opposed to stepping back from the present and thinking about how things might look different in a more fundamental sense, as many utopian writers were trying to do, and of course doing so to try and criticise existing structures at the same time. So it seems to me that the politics of uh, of opinion polls is both about developments nearer in time and about developments that are likely as opposed to developments which even if less likely, are perhaps desirable. That's a different way of doing politics. Mm. Now then, you, you would, you know, you're putting forward this idea that the, this concern about the future undermines, to some extent, 
uh, democracy. And yet there's a strange aspect of this, which is authoritarian regimes, you would think, would be better placed to deal with the long future, right? They don't have to worry about elections every five years and they can sit back and see long-term threats to their society, whether it's uh, climate change, AI, pandemics, whatever. And, you know, looking ahead, cope with those in, a, in a, perhaps a better way than uh, governments obsessed with the short term. And yet the opposite seems the case, right? I mean, it seems to be that democracies have been better at dealing with climate change than, let's say, China building all its coal electricity generation or China dealing with the lockdown, which it messed up. Uh, You know, it seems that democracy still copes with the future, even if it's worried about the future. Yes, I I tend to agree with with both parts of what you're saying. So on the one hand, that uh, the claim is often be that democracy is bad at this, and yet the reality is not quite so clear. So this is, of course, a long-standing idea. You go back to Tocqueville in the in the early nineteenth century, and he's already articulating the thought that if democracies have one particular weakness, it's perhaps that they deal badly with the future, with things that um, are not about the immediate satisfaction of uh, of an impatient population. Um, so he feels that uh, democratic authorities, because they have to cater to public opinion, they are going to prioritize what an impatient public once at a given moment. And his point of comparison is what he calls aristocracy, in other words, the the ancien regime. But similar things have been said, not just about aristocracy, not just about monarchy, but also about technocracy, coming perhaps closer to, um, to your Chinese example. In other words, that those forms of authority which are not just inherited, but are appointed for reasons of expertise, that they too might make a claim to long-term competence precisely because they don't have to make such a, uh, a tight connection between their policy making and public opinion. They can afford to, to do unpopular things and therefore to see the longer perspective. You, you get this uh, kind of reasoning with central banks, for example. So, I mean, we've, we've moved on from, from Tocqueville in terms of what the examples are, but the, the sentiments are, are quite similar. So, so this idea that democracy is myopic, is short-termist, is a long-standing one. And the idea that some alternative is less myopic, whether it is aristocracy, monarchy, technocracy, this too is a long-standing idea. But as you then also suggested, it's it's not, to my mind at least, so clear that these alternatives necessarily do have that uh, intrinsic advantage. They may be less attached to the electoral cycle. But technocracy, for example, can have its own sources of of myopia, of short-termism. Um, it can prioritize quantifiable targets, for example, things which are the, the core of a mandate, such as uh, an inflation target in the case of, uh, of a central bank. And prioritizing one particular variable in that sense can perhaps make you think that you can see the long term because you're sort of cutting down policymaking to something manageable. But it's not clear that a long-term perspective in policymaking really can can work with uh, with a focus on a certain set of targets, a certain set of variables, and not the, the wider set of considerations that democratic authorities have to deal with. Um, and, uh, and so indeed, I think this is often the case with, uh, with 
technocratic institutions such as central banks that the the claim to to long term perspective at some point comes up against uh, severe challenges as it encounters the the real world demands of uh, of the economy. And of course, you might say that uh, you know democratic authorities, because they are tuned to public opinion, they are able to to make a case for what they're doing. At least they they should do. Responsive democratic authorities try to convince public opinion, and you probably are not going to get very far in terms of policy making for the long term if you don't bring public opinion with you. Democracy has, at least in principle, even if that is often honoured in the breach, it has this capacity to interact with public opinion to persuade people to to build a kind of common sense around the policies which it advances. So in all those respects, I think the the long-standing idea that non-democratic authorities can see into the future and act on the future more effectively is is somewhat suspect. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Hmm. Now, as you talk about the future and people's worries about it, it seems to me there are, you know, you're suggesting a couple of broad groupings of anxieties. One is about uh, things going wrong, you know, climate change going wrong, AI going wrong, immigration going wrong, pandemics going wrong. And the other is slightly different, which is a lack of hope a lack of hope that things can get better. Yeah, Robert Owen was a dreamer. Marxism didn't work out. Communism led to unhappiness. Colonialism didn't bring uh, progress to the world. The Americans didn't build a beacon on the hill. You know, so is there a sense in which almost our civilization has become tired and exhausted by having tried so many ideas and found them all to fail? There's, uh, there's certainly a sense in which the uh, the confidence in um, ideological projects has been tested to uh, uh, perhaps the breaking point over over the course of uh, of the twentieth century. Um, that one should conclude, therefore, that uh, this is a way of politics that um, is obsolete. I think is uh, is too fast. But there's, there's certainly a sense in which the the promises of of twentieth century ideologies, because they uh, they were unsuccessful, not always for reasons internal to their ideology, but to do with the, the distribution of power in the world, to do with also historical contingency. This clearly makes it uh, um, harder for people to have confidence in the kind of longer perspective which such ideologies promoted. I think, uh, c- coming back to where you, you started there, I think you're, you're right to make a distinction between a, a sense of things getting worse and and a sense of um, short-term adversity paired with longer-term hope. 
because clearly throughout the modern age, the latter perspective has been um, politically quite uh, quite widespread. I mean, socialists of the, of the 19th century would perhaps have uh, insisted that things do have to get worse before they get better. Or they, uh, either because uh, because when you try to pursue some type of progressive change, you're probably going to meet a, a backlash. And that backlash is probably going to be stronger than you are, at least in, in the beginning. So uh, property holders, wealthy capitalists and so on, are going to uh, uh, try to clamp down on emancipatory politics very quickly. This kind of uh, reading, I think, is um, is common in the 19th century and in the 20th century, and of course becomes one of the reasons to to say we need to organise, we need to have a socialist party, we need to to have trade unions again, forms of organisation which are structured so as to last, so as to to keep a set of interests represented across time. But that notion of short-term or medium-term adversity finding its justification or uh, something that one can find hope in beyond it because one can one can hope to organize through that phase into a better one afterwards, I think that's exactly what is a bit different about the present, that, that sense that things are getting worse in the the various fields that you mentioned, whether it's ecological, whether it's economic, whether it's to do with society and culture, that sense of uh, immediate adversity uh, tends not to be paired with that sense of uh, in the longer term, that adversity can be overcome. That comes out of this idea of finality. The adversity is is a kind of a fear, at least, that it's a final adversity as opposed to an interim adversity. That, I think, is uh, is an important distinction. And again, has something to do with the different ways in which politics is is organized. To have that that belief that adversity is interim adversity, you need to to have sources of uh, of confidence, sources of reassurance. And I think that's what political parties, movements, sexual institutions like trade unions were able to offer for a while, although even then quite imperfectly, and a less able to do at the moment. Th- thinking, just listening to you speak about these various, um, you know, big ideas that haven't really delivered uh, adversity or not, you know, short-term adversity or not. I mean, the current trend is towards nationalism. And I guess if you think about Chinese nationalism, that would be coupled and you know, involves a huge uh, hope about the future. You know, things are getting better. Uh, China's getting stronger and China's going to rule the world, and it's going to be a great Chinese century, would be the view of you know, many people in China, whereas nationalism in the West tends to be thought of as backward-looking and uh, nostalgic for something that's past. How do you reflect on those different attitudes to the future in the East and the West? I think Western nationalism has always been a combination of the backward and the forward-looking perspective um, caused many different kinds of nationalism of left and right um, and of uh, with a more pronounced orientation to the future or more more nostalgic. But I think if one tried to find common threads, then they probably would generally span that. Those who are uh, nationalist in the sense that they are trying to preserve an idealized past 
are often doing so precisely because they fear that in the future it will dissipate, that it will not be preserved. They want to preserve into the future what they, they fear is on the cusp of, uh, of waning. So that concern with the future, partly because of a concern with the past, I think is, is very much present in um, Western nationalisms back to the beginning of nationalism in the 19th century and uh, is not entirely absent today either in the West. Uh, I think it would be mistaken to, to say that um, those of a, of a nationalist persuasion in, in the present have sort of lost sight of the future altogether. They may well exactly be nationalists because they, they care about the, the fate of, uh, of that nation that they associate with. So nationalism is one of those isms which um, has been a, a source for some people of, uh, of confidence in the future or of um, the sense that adversity can be short-term adversary in the name of something that is, uh, is longer lasting. Um, but nationalism is only one of those. I've mentioned other isms that perhaps have also played that role. And of course, religion. I mean, so the place of religion in this uh, in this story is uh, is again an interesting one. Uh, coming back to Tocqueville, Tocqueville really felt that religion was a source of concern for the future, and that one of the problems that democracies were facing, partly because of their institutional short termism to do with concern with public opinion, was that this was being reinforced because publics were becoming less religious, um, and that less religious publics would have less reason to to look beyond immediate material concerns, questions of immediate satisfaction, to see some type of uh, uh, longer cause that they might um, project themselves into. So religion is possibly for, for some people exactly that um, way of thinking about the future, which, uh, which is also, um, if not on the wane in the present, it, it, it finds its, uh, its challenges. I mean, religion is a complex one, though. Tocqueville's view is, is, is only one. I think there were also good reasons to see religion um, as, to the extent that it was forward-looking, also paired with a kind of, um, if not fatalism, then perhaps a sense that uh, real change comes after life on this earth rather than in this world. And so the, the future orientation uh, certainly of uh, of early modern Christianity, for example, is not necessarily a future orientation that's conducive to to democratic politics, um, though it may be compatible with it. So the, the place of religion in the story is uh, is a mixed one. It can be exactly that which fosters concern with the future, if you're Tocquevillian. It can also be that which fosters a kind of concern with the future, which is a slightly different one from democratic citizenship. But I think it's another, it, it speaks again to this idea that what are the intellectual sources for locating the present day within a longer timescape? And the isms plus nationalism, also religion, I think historically have uh, have been part of that. Well, what about India today then? I mean, if you take India as a place where there is democratic practice to some degree and, you know, continuing belief in reincarnation, uh, it, it, you know, against Western uh, increasing disbelief about the afterlife. Uh, does that affect Indian politics in some profound way? If so, how does it affect it? I think what you see in India speaks partly to this idea that uh, more authoritarian forms of politics often claim a certain 
uh, capacity to think about the future. As you say, India is a democracy, but it's a democracy with a uh, a very powerful ruling party. Modi's um, way of uh, of governing India, I think, does exactly rely on the idea of um, the the longer term better uh, future. And this, in this respect, rather different from a lot of uh, Western democracies. Amrit Kal is this concept which I believe Modi has been uh, using at various points over the last few years, which is basically a kind of reference to a, a golden era, a golden future. It, it tracks the next 25 years or so, I think, up until the um, 100-year anniversary of Indian, Indian independence. And um, I guess the, the critical observation would be to say, is this a concept of the, the promised better future, which is invoked to exactly make sense of, of hardship and even to distract people from hardship in the nearer term. As a uh, as a kind of fairly strong man ruler, this capacity to present yourself as, uh, as reason for the longer view, because who's going to challenge you, is something that you see claimed in, uh, in, in India, but it may be claimed in a way that's... Um, it's not a progressive use of the future. It's, it's, a, it's a use of the future to, if you like, offset critique within within the present. So you know, these things play out differently in, in different countries and different parts of the world. And there certainly is a sense in what, what you're seeing in India is is not quite the same as what you're seeing in uh, in Western democracy. Um, but uh, but there are continuities, I think, this uh, this. This concern about the nearer future, the promise of the better future, I think, are are things you see quite pronouncedly in India. Well, you know, yours is an interesting book because it, it's a political science book with a fresh idea, which doesn't often happen. Uh, but then yeah, I, I, I'm wondering what the practical implications of it are. So if you were advising, I don't know, if you had a conversation with Macron or Keir Starmer, who's widely thought to be uh, the next British prime minister, uh, what would you say to them as about how your ideas feed into practical politics that they as you know political practitioners might take into account in their five-year term so let's run with uh, with the Keir Starmer example um, there is I think a sense in which Starmer's labor is sensitive to this idea that people in an age of emergencies want a politics that is a little bit less like emergency management and a little bit more the promise of going beyond the immediate crisis of the moment to uh, something a little bit more considered, something a little bit more um, less frenzied. So if you look at the the recent, um, it's called the Campaign Bible, this uh, campaigning document that uh, Labour put out recently about the, the, the themes that it would like to emphasise over the coming yeah, there's quite a lot of talk about how we need to be a bit more long-term in in our approaches, and that that labour is a um, is a reliable uh, resource for for that kind of longer than the emergency perspective. My advice would be though that uh, it's one thing to to talk in that way, but um, if you really mean to do politics in that longer-term sense, you you. you you can't really deprive yourself of the resources that that has traditionally relied upon. So Keir Starmer clearly tries typically to define himself against the the party's recent past, against its political traditions. You, you don't see reference to 
socialism to utilitarianism, communitarianism, a lot of the traditions associated with with Labour are are not things that uh, tend to be emphasised by the the party at present. Uh, rather, you have missions, you have uh, particular concrete pledges, which um, which are sort of efforts to to be long termers, but without the, the the wider principles, the wider ideological framework that have traditionally been that way of uh, of doing politics. And of course, it's it's politics in a in a relatively technocratic register. It's a party which increasingly is dominated by its leadership. You go back five years and maybe you you had a slightly different story when you had a very large membership, when you had efforts to um, involve that membership, not just at the electoral moments, but in the the wider activities of the of the political party. And as I said earlier, it's often that wider membership and the activist base of a party, which is the one that, that cares about having a longer-term politics of ideas, having a cause, something that is not simply about uh, the next electoral cycle. So I guess my my advice would be don't just talk the language of the long term, but think about how you're going to organize your party, who you're going to empower within it, what type of uh, arrangement of political proposals you're going to make so that it's not just the, the sort of the aggregate of standalone missions, but it's something like a more integrated program intended for long term uh, thinking and organization. These are the things that you, you have to do if you want to walk the, the long term walk and not just talk the long term talk. Well, thank you very much indeed for uh, telling us about your very interesting book. We've uh, very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.